And thanks for joining me. I have this book that I want to read you. We just sang this, right? Matthew's Begats. And this is a little storybook that reminds us, and maybe you know them already, but it reminds us, or maybe for the first time, who are all these people that we just sang about? So this is, the book is called The Ballad to Matthew's Begats. Has any of you read this book before? Anyone read this book? No? Okay, great. So this, remember, we just sang this, right? So Abraham had Isaac. Did you know Abraham and his wife Sarah were really old when their son Isaac was born? In fact, Abraham was 100 years old. Isaac, he had Jacob. Did you know Jacob's twin brother Esau was covered by so much red hair, his parents named him Harry and his friends called him Red. Wouldn't want to be called Harry, would you? Jacob, he had Judah and his kin. And then came Aram, then Aminadad, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Did you know Ruth was not an Israelite, but she chose to follow the God of Israel instead of the gods of her homeland, Moab? Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. Did you know David was the shepherd boy who killed the giant Goliath? David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Did you know Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem? It took 30,000 men to cut trees, 80,000 stone cutters, 175,000 other workers, and seven years to complete. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had a good boy, good old, good old Rehoboam. Did you know Jehoshaphat had 28 sons and 60 daughters? Can you imagine having that many brothers and sisters? Followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat and Joram had Uzziah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Did you know Hezekiah, the 13th king of Judah, was a good king? He removed places where false gods were worshipped. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah. Did you know Manasseh was the wicked, wickedest king of Judah? He re- rebuilt the idols his father had torn down. Did you know Josiah was eight years old? Tristan's middle name is Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Some of you are close to eight or actually eight. Can you imagine becoming king at eight years old right now? Any of you ready to rule a country? No, I didn't think so. I'm not either. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He worked hard to bring the people back to God. He ruled Judah for 31 years. Josiah grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity. Not a good chapter. Did you know Jehoiakim was a bad king? So God let the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem. They destroyed the whole city, even the beautiful temple. Jehoiakim had 10,000 others, and 10,000 others were taken to Babylon as slaves. That's because Jehoiakim was a liar. Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Ebiad, who had Eliakim, 
Eliakim, had Azer, and had Zadok, who had Achan. Achan was the father of Eliad. Did you know Eliad is the Greek form of a Hebrew name meaning God is grandeur. God is grand. Then he had Eleazar, who had Mathan, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely. I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. That's it. I hope you guys had a great Christmas. And that was just a very quick reminder of all of the ancestors of Jesus that led to him. All right, go sit, go join your parents. Thanks for joining me. Well, probably if you're an adult, that was a helpful reminder too of the history of Israel that led to Jesus. I, I do wonder if any of you have tried Ancestry and Me or 20, uh, Ancestry DNA or 23andMe. Uh, they were pushing it hard as a holiday gift too, so maybe you got it as a holiday gift this year and have yet to find out your uh, ancestry. And I can totally imagine if you've grown up in America and you've, your family's had many, many generations of living in America that you'd be curious about your ethnic background, what are the different makeups in your ancestors, uh, maybe even if it's just finding out you know, whether uh, what Nordic countries you're from. You're pretty sure you're from you know, Nordic countries. Maybe you think you're from Norway, but maybe it's not just Norway, it's Norway, Finland, or Sweden, and finding out some of those details, or maybe you even have a little English blood in you, who knows? Uh, I know for me, it's kind of boring for me to think about it. I'm pretty sure I'm like 98% Chinese, so it's going to be a really boring uh, report coming back to me. Um, people often ask me, what's the predominant religion in Hong Kong where I'm from? And I often say it's money, because that's really what people worship there. But to answer the question about religion for real, really the most predominant, prevalent religion is Chinese ancestral worship. Most of the public holidays that have the same kind of uh, gravitas as Christmas and Easter does in the U.S. are holidays related to the worship or the, the giving honor to ancestors. And if you're not familiar with the worship of ancestors, the best American representation of it, at least on a pop culture level, is Mulan. If you've watched the Disney cartoon Mulan, you would see that Mulan is interacting with their ancestors. They're like ghost-like figures that float around and they talk with the living, they talk with their descendants. And similarly in Hong Kong today, there are people who do believe that um, their ancestors, that they can communicate with their ancestors, they can pray to their ancestors, that um, you can buy from shops these paper money, paper cars, paper planes, paper houses, and you burn these paper things. And the theory is that, that it goes to the next life to your ancestors. And there's definitely at least two times a year where there's major public holidays where everyone goes to their ancestors' graves and pays respects uh, to their ancestors. And people may even at particular anniversaries of loved ones present food at a shrine that uh, may be in their home, this shrine, a shrine to a loved one, an ancestor who has passed away. And so again, you know, it, it, it is a little bit like Christmas and Easter in the sense that many people follow the cultural traditions. They may or may not actually believe in praying to these ancestors. Nonetheless, um, ancestors are a big deal in Chinese culture in a way that it's not a big deal in American culture. In a similar way, ancestry and genealogies were a big deal for the Jewish people in the biblical times as well. 
And we'll see throughout, we see throughout Scripture times when genealogies are given to us. And so as Christians, as we read Scripture, as in the inspired Word of God, we have to ask the question, why, why bother with all of these genealogies, which, as we already recognize, can seem a bit boring as we read through it? And in today's passage, we see in the first chapter of Matthew, where the Apostle Matthew um, begins his book with, um, and begins his book about Jesus' life and ministry with the genealogy of Jesus. And so what I hope we'll see today in this message is simply this, is that Jesus' Jewish genealogy brings together Jew and non-Jew. And what that means for us is that, therefore, let's go live out Jesus' good news across ethnic lines. Jesus' Jewish genealogy brings together Jew and non-Jew. So let's live out Jesus' good news across ethnic lines. It's interesting because Luke, in his gospel, also gives a genealogy of Jesus. And yet he doesn't start his book with uh, the genealogy of Jesus like Matthew does. And so there are these differences between Matthew's genealogy of Jesus and Luke's genealogy of Jesus. And Luke's genealogy of Jesus primarily is concerned with tracing Jesus' ancestry back to Adam. And Luke waits until chapter 3 in his gospel to bring up the genealogy. And it, this is so therefore, this is after the birth of Christ. And, you know, we've looked at a lot of ch- passages in Luke in the Christmas season. So the, after the birth of Christ, after the boyhood year, years of Jesus, and after even the baptism of Jesus as an adult, before he brings up, again, this genealogy of Jesus. Now, Luke traces G- Jesus' genealogy backwards all the way to Adam, establishing that Jesus is not just the Son of God, but also the Son of Man, that he is God who took on flesh to become the God-man, fully divine and fully human, that he came to save humanity from sin by taking on the form of humanity himself. Matthew's genealogy, as we've seen sung and read uh, in this little book that I just read to the kids, that Jesus, Matthew traces Jesus's Uh, ancestry forward beginning with Abraham. And Matthew's genealogy is primarily concerned with showing Jesus' spiritual credential, spiritual ancestry, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to both Abraham and to David. And that is, in Jesus, God's promise to Abraham to become a father of uh, descendants as numerous as the stars is fulfilled in Jesus. And that Jesus also fulfills the promise to Israel of a Messiah that would come from the line of David. And it's interesting because Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, introduces the gospel with these very words before going into the genealogy. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we see highlighted Jesus right here in the first verse that he is a son of David and son of Abraham. And this makes sense because the gospel of Matthew is primarily aimed at a Jewish audience. This phrase that we heard just read, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, literally translates to the book of the Genesis of Jesus. And the phrase is reminiscent to other genealogies that we can find in the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, in chapter 5, in chapter 10. And these genealogies typically begin with a person and then list their descendants. The genealogy of Jesus is different, and then it begins with Jesus and traces back to their, his ancestors. Many of these ancestors that are listed are, are heroes of the faith, 
hearers of the Jewish faith, hearers of the Jewish nation, and therefore point the reader to the ultimate hero that would save humanity from darkness. And we see overall the point, therefore, of these genealogies is to show that God is sovereign. God is the one who is in control of all of history and that he is working to make all things new, that Jesus is the focal point of making all things new. And that as scripture says in Galatians 4, 4, that Jesus came when the fullness of time had come, that he was born when the fullness of time had come. So that's really the major point of the genealogy. But I think it's good to ask, what more does Matthew's genealogy of Jesus tell us? And it's interesting because even in just looking at the people that are mentioned in Jesus's genealogy, what we see is the very DNA of Jesus's ministry is captured in these verses in the genealogy, that Jesus's ministry would be a ministry of weakness, not power, that Jesus's ministry was not just political and not just for the Jewish nation, that Jesus's ministry was God restoring all of mankind to himself, and that his ministry was a ministry to break down walls of hostility that exist between God and man and between humanity themselves. So again, we see Jesus's Jewish genealogy bring together Jew and non-Jew, and it means for us that we are to live out Jesus's good news across ethnic lines. If we look at Jewish genealogies, typically they only include men. So when we hear Matthew's genealogy read, the inclusion of four women into Jesus' genealogy shines a spotlight onto these four women. And you may have heard this already in other blogs or sermons, but these women that are mentioned are women who show great faith and righteousness before the Lord. They're recognized as women of great faith by their inclusion into our Savior's genealogy. Their inclusion teach us that the gospel message is for men and women alike, and that the scope of God's salvation when Jesus came was one of broadening out its scope to show more clearly than ever that God is a God who wants to bring his salvation, his love to all people. But what is even more striking is what these four women have in common. And all of these four women are Gentiles, not Jews. The four women are Tamar of Canaan, Rahab of Jericho, uh, Ruth the Moabite, and the ex-wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba. Now, Jewish people, and some cultures are like this still, Jewish people back then used their genealogies to show the purity of their lineage. To say, oh, look, we're a good family. Look how pure our line is. And so... To include in the Messiah's genealogy for women, for Gentile women, is really not the best way to show how pure your line is. If Matthew was merely trying to highlight the Jewishness of the Christian faith, then he would not include these four women. He would just leave them out. Or he could have instead highlighted some well-known Jewish matriarchs, women like Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. And in fact, if he had included these three women, for instance, they would have been a good prelude to the supernatural birth of Mary because they, these women too experience the supernatural work of God in their lives. But Matthew chooses to include in Jesus' genealogy 
three ancestors that were non-Jews, these ancestors of King David that were non-Jews, and King Solomon's non-Jew mother. And that he did this to highlight that God has always intended and still is working to bring Jew and non-Jew together in relationship with him, for he is the creator and redeemer of all people. God does not love Jewish people more than non-Jewish people. God does not love white people more than black people. God does not love black people more than white people. God does not show favoritism to black, white, brown, or yellow. All ethnicities and cultures and colors are his creation made in his likeness after his own image. And just like he worked to destroy the walls of hostilities that exist between Jew and non-Jew at the time, and so today God is at work to destroy the walls of hostility that exist between all people. I, uh, InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary says this about this, this text. This point fits an emphasis that runs throughout Matthew's gospel, that God is not only for people of our own race or culture, we must cross racial and cultural boundaries to evangelize the whole world, humbly learn from other cultures, and serve with our brothers and sisters there. Amber and I met, Amber's my wife, Amber and I met when I was in seminary in Orlando at RTS, and she was at Duke University for undergrad, and it was the year 2000. We met through a mutual friend who I was in seminary with, and Amber came to visit him um, in Orlando to do the Disney World thing, to visit him and, and his wife. And our first official date was a sort of an in-between point between Durham, North Carolina, and Orlando, Florida. And the city we picked was Savannah, Georgia. It seemed like a romantic city to go have a first date in, and it was about four or five hours drive for both of us. Now, it was really my first time spending some extended time in the South, in a southern city. Florida, if you've never been to Florida, Florida is its own thing. No one calls the Florida the South. Florida is just Florida, okay? Um, so it was my first time in like a, what I would consider like a truly southern city. And I don't know if I was being oversensitive or there was really something to it that was a reality to it, but as we walked around Savannah for five hours trying to get to know each other and be romantic and all that, I kept feeling like people were staring at us. And me, just, I think I was surprised by this feeling. And I think just, I, I just like, I am who I am. And so I just was commenting out loud to Amber, like, oh, I think those people are staring at us. Oh, I think those people are staring at us too. And like, throughout our five hour date, I was making these comments and feeling a bit self-conscious about this interracial date that we were having. I have to give <laughs> Amber a lot of credit that given the way I was acting that day that she still gave me a second date. Um, this first date where this Asian guy was just pointing out race-related issues left and right. Um, it would have been easy for her to just kind of write off me as this overly sensitive, unthoughtful guy pointing out things Looking back, there probably was something to it. I probably wasn't just being paranoid. There probably were people looking at us. And this was 19 years ago, which both sounds like a long time ago and not that long ago. But, you know, I, I think I'm not saying that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is saying that we should all go and have interracial marriages. Um, 
But I think it is sad to note that just 19 years ago that it was sort of still rather uncommon for there to be interracial dating or marriages and that it looked strange to others or even wrong in some people's eyes for that to happen. And there are people still now today who may think that way. Almost 20 years later, there still are a lot of walls of hostility that exist between people in our country. And perhaps it is a fun and maybe good even diagnostic question to explore this issue in our own hearts. If you're single, would you consider dating, marrying someone not of your culture, not of your race? If you are married with children, would you consider your children? Would you object to your children marrying, dating someone not of your race or culture? Everyone likes to consider themselves open-minded until the rubber meets the road and it gets personal. Living out Jesus' good news across ethnic lines is not rocket science, yet at the same time, it's not simple. As humans, we just have the tendency to befriend and gather with people like us. That's just what's in our comfort zone. Jesus calls that loving those who love us. And maybe it's the same thing as saying liking those who are like you, which you could think of it as like amounts to liking yourself, right? Liking people who are like you is like liking yourself. It's kind of like bad social media etiquette where you like your own post. Like don't like your own post. Like let other people decide whether it's likable or not. I think it is a reality, right, that racism can be baked into societal structures, but our tribalism is our need to belong with people like us. It sounds rather innocuous when you put it kind of in that positive way, but there is a shadow side to that. Being with people like us usually means and involves either explicitly, implicitly, or subconsciously keeping people out. Or worse, we look down on people who are not like us and think we are better people than we are. Or even worse, we create policies to disadvantage those who are not like us. I'm sad to say that in our denomination, the PCA, that some of the founding members of our denomination were against interracial marriage, for instance, and justified it biblically, even. I'm glad to say that our denomination, a few years ago, recognized the sin in that and formally voted to repent of some of those race-related prejudices. The reality is, whatever we call it, racism, tribalism, liking people who are like us, it's hard to love people well as Christians if we don't see people well. How can we hope to share and live out the gospel with others if we don't understand them, if we don't understand where they come from? It's hard for people to hear the gospel message from us if they don't feel like we know them and understand them. This is the reality of living life in a post-Christian pluralistic society. We can't just expect people to come to us. We can't just expect people to assimilate to our culture. We have to think about it much more like being a missionary in a foreign country. If we're not followers of Jesus, then we may not have much motivation to be incarnate in other people's lives and cultures and worlds. 
to step into their world to understand them. If we're not followers of Jesus, we may be just content with being nice, with being civil, with being professional. But God calls us to so much more than being nice and civil and professional. God calls us to live out his good news across ethnic lines. So I'm going to mention five things here and five things of five steps, if you will, to living out Jesus's good news across ethnic lines. And let me say this, because it's going to sound a little bit like you're reading from a BuzzFeed article. I truly believe that there's a great difference between reading a BuzzFeed article and what I'm about to say in that our motivation and power comes from a very different place. And I'll get to that. Number one, recognize you have a culture, whether that's Caucasian, Midwestern, Southern, Chinese, Korean, Asian American, Indian, Australian. You have a culture. And really, it's just saying, it's like owning that you have a personality that is shaped by the culture around you. And a simple question would just be, can you name some of the characteristics of the culture that you come from. Number two, recognize that others may have a different culture. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. Um, I think there has been, really, I think it started really 20 years ago. Even when I was in college, it was, all the talk was about diversity even then. But there's a shift away from saying we're colorblind. Oh, I just, I don't see color in you. It's almost like faux pas to say that now, because to say that I don't see color is to say I don't recognize that you have a different culture. I don't see the differences between us. And so when we say recognize that others may have a different culture, it may be as simple as saying, can you name characteristics of that person's culture that are beyond the prejudice stereotypes that often are associated. I don't know if you guys have seen, there's this little video clip from Trevor Noah's Late Show where they show really old clips from Bernie Sanders where he's trying to illustrate not being racist, but he does that in a classroom with kids and he's like blurting out all these racial stereotypes and it's almost like, you're like teaching the kids like racial stereotypes that they may not have had already. And I know you're trying to do the opposite, but Everyone's culture has strengths and weaknesses, good and bad. And so often, the prejudice stereotypes focus only on something that is negative. But can we name for other people's cultures the strengths, the beauties in that culture? Number three, along the same lines, but be curious about other people's culture that are different than yours. Like I said, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And I know we live in an age where Asking questions may be seen as a microaggression, but don't let that fear keep you from asking questions of someone else's life, of someone else's culture. Don't let that keep you from being curious and learning about others. This is where it begins to move away from BuzzFeed. Okay, so I, I sounded a little bit like BuzzFeed article so far, but four, be willing to allow God to soften your heart and offer forgiveness or to offer forgiveness or ask for forgiveness. This is the power of the gospel. If you ask a question that offends someone, 
We should be able to ask for forgiveness as Christians because we understand that we are already forgiven. We understand that we're secure in Christ's love and the life that we live is one that we do make mistakes, that we do say things to offend, whether intentionally or unintentionally. The power of the gospel enables us to ask for forgiveness, to offer forgiveness if someone has offended us. We don't have to just stay in the safe zone of small talk. We cannot be of use by God if we are going to stay in that nice, civil, professional, small talk world. God calls us to engage and speak into people's lives, to learn and be curious about them. And the gospel enables us to forgive and to offer forgiveness. And we have to start with our own hearts to see the places in our hearts that may have become hard with regard to these issues. Lastly, and I think just as importantly, know that your identity is first and foremost in Christ and not your culture. Know that your identity is first and foremost in Christ and not your culture. If our identity is first in our culture and then as a Christian, then we don't have something bigger than our culture to bring us together. It is when we put our identity as Christians first, understanding that we are all made in the image of God, understanding the oneness that we have with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It is putting our identity first and foremost in Christ that enables us to say, it's okay to be with people who are different than us. If we put our culture first as our identity, then it becomes even easier to say, I just want to be with my people And I'll be civil and professional with others when I have to, but I'm just going to be with my people. God calls us to something bigger than just getting along. He calls us to live out the good news of Jesus in this world. These five things are, in some sense, simple, but they're a lot already. Some of you are living it out already. Some of you agree with it in your minds and yet aren't quite sure what it means to really live it out. And some of you may not agree at all with what I've said. But let me say a few more words about the gospel because it's got to be about the gospel. This gospel, which we've just heard over the Christmas season, described as the good news of great joy for all the people. This good news is about forgiveness. But forgiveness more often than not, is defined in our hearts by the world's definition of forgiveness rather than by God's word and God's example. And I've said some of these things before, either in a sermon or to you personally, depending on the conversations I've had with you, that sometimes preaching is just reminding people of things that are true from God's word. So let me remind you about some things about biblical forgiveness, because We can't live out God's good news across ethnic lines if we don't understand forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just about letting go of angry feelings. This is primarily how we think about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not primarily about letting go of angry feelings. Think about it. If God were only concerned about getting rid of his angry feelings towards us, we'd be in big trouble. Forgiveness is ultimately about reconciliation between two people. 
God ultimately desires to reconcile humanity to himself. Certainly requires humanity to respond in being willing to be reconciled, in being willing to recognize what they've done wrong. But God is not just concerned about getting rid of his angry feelings or we'd be in trouble. He desires reconciliation. On an individual and corporate level, reconciliation is not just about justice, which is really how we're talking about it in our culture mostly today. Reconciliation in the biblical sense is about peace amongst people. If God were only concerned about justice, we'd also be in big trouble. God gives us the ability to choose to take upon ourselves the cost of other people's sin. That is what God has done for us. He's taken upon himself the cost of our sins out of love for us. And so when we seek reconciliation with others, we don't just demand justice. We can choose as Christians to say, you have hurt me, but I choose to take the cost of your sin upon myself in the same way that God has done that for me. God ultimately desires peace on earth, peace amongst people, to tear down those walls of hostility. And so I think we do have to take it back to the big picture of what God is doing, that God is calling us, yes, to live out the gospel across ethnic lines, but it has to be from a place of understanding what the gospel is, what this forgiveness is that God offers us, the reconciliation that he seeks to bring in this world, the peace which he desires in this world. And this is why Jesus' ministry had to be a ministry of weakness rather than power. It's why Jesus' ministry had to be about restoring all of mankind, not just about nationalism. It's why Jesus' ministry was about breaking down walls of hostility between God and humanity and between people in this world. He calls us to be a part of breaking down those walls of hostility and living out these good news across ethnic lines. Theologian Henry Nouwen says this, and I'll end with this quote. Jesus was a revolutionary who did not become an extremist since he did not offer an ideology but himself. So I say, now go and do likewise. Go offer yourself to a world in need. Go offer yourself and not just an ideology. Go offer yourself across ethnic lines. Go offer yourself and Christ in you. Go be the gospel incarnate. Let's pray.